This episode is brought to you by the Grace Enough podcast, where host Amber Cullum and her guests delve into hard truths and the unwavering grace of God while journeying in the kingdom of God here on earth. Listen every week at graceenoughpodcast.com or on your favorite listening app. How can we give love if we cannot receive it? How can we receive love if we are not there long enough to be known warts and all? Hi, I'm Carl Vaders, and I'm a small church pastor, and welcome to Can This Work in a Small Church. My guest is Alan Briggs. Alan is a pastor in Colorado Springs. He's the author of Staying is the New Going. He's the host of the Right Side Up Leadership Podcast and has tons of resources available at stayforth.com. In this conversation, Alan and I talk about why geography matters in church leadership, especially in an increasingly mobile and increasingly electronic world. Staying planted where God put you is more important than ever for effective incarnational ministry. And don't forget to stick around when the interview is done. I'll come back with an overview of the content and an answer to the question, can this work in a small church? Well, Alan, it's good to have you with us today. Welcome to the podcast. Yeah, great to be here. Love what you're up to, Carl. Oh, thanks. And you as well. You know, I, I got your book, Staying is the New Going. And you know how every pastor has that stack of books that they're going to get to one day. And after a while, you don't even remember where you got the book. <laughs> yep. yep. You've, you've actually had it since 2017 and you just never got around to it till last week. It's been around a while and I probably did get it as soon as it came out. And I don't even know if it was given to me at a conference or if I saw it online and thought that's cool. And I bought it myself. Doesn't matter. <laughs> but just a right few now. months ago, yeah, I was going through that stack as I do every once in a while and go, okay, I need to get to that one because I really have there. It's been staring at me for a while and I'm glad that I did because uh, there's so much in it that's so important. And as I've been talking with pastors over the last few years, especially the whole idea of the value of staying, the value of the long-term pastorate has become a real theme that I keep coming back to and that I see the importance of. So let's start with that. The whole idea of staying is the new going. What got you interested in this subject matter? Because you got to really have a passion for something in order to actually put in the time to write a book about it. So where did that come from? All right, let me let you into my world. Like right now, this moment, I've been with a pastor who has come into my context to spend three days with me, kind of a coaching intensive but it's in my city and it feels really different, Carl, than when it's somewhere else because he's meeting my friends. He's in the topography of my life. I have to leave for four hours to pick up kids, to get dinner ready, to do all the things we have to do at home. And that's my life. And he comes into my life and it's a completely different texture on that. Yeah. And we, we get to tell the story of for the last dozen years, we've made a commitment with about a dozen leaders to be able to make this shift. So now we have fruit that we didn't even have when I was writing that book. We had a story and now we've seen things really mature. And it's like, we've said, Hey, you saw little blossoms, then there are apples. And now here's the cider. How cool is this that we get to taste and see what God has done over this time. And so I can honestly say that a lot of those stories have matured. 
um, since then we've buried people. And since then, um, I've done funerals. We've, uh, you know, waved to people on the curbs, curb, sadly, as they cashed out on, on their homes and moved to the Midwest. Uh, you know, no harm, no foul, but just the loss of that, the pain, the sting. And then, of course, the joy, the maturity in that. Some of the people I write about in that we've deepened friendship. We've become deeper ministry partners since then. And really what got me into it was conviction and was a moment with God standing on top of my city, looking over a very divided city. I live in Colorado Springs uh, and it's beautiful. The reality is we had a lot of ugly uh, underpinnings underneath it. And to say both of those God knows about, both of those are here and are true and are realities. And we just saw a grave difference in the people that were coming for vacation uh, and the people that truly were pilgrims versus tourists. To become a pilgrim is to say, I'm not enamored maybe anymore by this. I don't have a vacation relationship with the city. It isn't perfect, but it's beautiful. It's worth investing in. And I had to see it as the relationship with the city instead of thinking about where we were going to head off next, where the wheels were already spinning someplace that's cooler, someplace that seems, I don't know, better for our family or whatever the thing is. We had to say, maybe just maybe um, God wants to do it right underneath the surface, right here, right now. Uh, and it's, man, it's, it's been beautiful. Yeah. I mean, geography really does matter, doesn't it? Huge. Because we're in an era now, obviously, I mean, you and I aren't physically close to each other. You know, we're doing this on the internet and I'm grateful for all of that. But I think because we can now do this without being geographically close, I think we need to be more purposeful about ministering to those who are geographically close to us because it's so easy to forget about the geography, isn't it? Yes. I think it became more important during COVID. So it's interesting. There was a resurgence of this book during COVID and I thought it was incredibly timeless and timely. And then it became more timely during COVID as we're literally in proximity. I'm wondering some of my neighbors had died. Like, are they alive? No one is coming in and out of this home. Like, (laughs) how are they getting groceries? Like, and then they come out, it's like, oh, they're still alive. Our proximity became more important to us. We had to go in on foot, at least for seasons of quarantine and whatnot. You know, over the last two years, Carl, I'm actually in downtown. We have a hub space. I'm in proximity with the business community uh, in this season, proximity with the nonprofit community. And we gather things here in our city. We need, we need a hub in our city as stay forth. But in that season, I needed a hideout where I literally needed sort of a Zoom portal to the world. It was one mile away from my house. And I began to view my neighborhood differently as I would walk each day and see some of the same patterns and go, man, the outside of their house is a mess. What's going on in their family below Mm -hmm. that? And actually, as we're talking about small churches, really cool story unfolding right now. And in our city, there's a church that actually moved across town to an underserved part of town versus this is the place where everybody goes. And if you want to grow a church, you go up here, moved into an existing church building, smaller church. And that pastor actually moved into my neighborhood. And so we are co-missionaries in the neighborhood and they have moved into the neighborhood because proximity matters to them that much. And they've made a choice, not that it's proximity or growth, but literally proximity to the pain points and needs, the cracks in the city that they feel drawn to, um, even if they don't grow. And that is a beautiful choice to actually inhabit this part of the city. Of course, it's my part of the city. So I'm really excited that they're moving here as well. Uh, I love that. I want to narrow in on something because you introduce your book with with you sitting in a conference and listening to a fellow pastor from Australia who said something quite frankly rude about us Americans, uh, (laughs) but not inaccurate. (laughs) 
He said, no one is more transient than American pastors, like rocks with no moss. I mean, our, our audience is international, but we're predominantly an American audience because we are Americans. So that tends to be what we're who we're talking to. What is it about the American experience that, first of all, I believe it's true. What makes that true? And where do you think that comes from? And how do we as Americans need to be especially careful about this idea of staying rather than just simply being like, you know, rock skipping across the surface of the water? It's in our bloodstream. We're an entrepreneurial nation. We celebrate the startup, the new, the bigger, the better. We literally, a long time ago, people left another place and didn't stay to start a new place with better, newer, everything from government. And we we celebrate that. And what gets celebrated gets done. And the narrative of Steve Jobs gets celebrated. But you know who we don't celebrate is a small business owner that made payroll last month and paid their people more than they could have, took less profits than they could have. That right there is a local hero. And yet we don't celebrate that. What gets celebrated gets done. And so actually we have to change the narrative and we have to change the heroes before we can change the storyline. That's huge. Even like take a look at American history, the pioneer, even the word pioneer is a fully positive term, but settler is like, eh, yeah, yeah, oh, they settle, you know? don't settle, yeah. <laughs> don't settle. Come on, Carl, stop settling. But the point of pioneering is to arrive somewhere. I thought, I guess, right. But, but you're right. It is a part of our history, part of our psyche. And it's to a certain degree, understandably so innovation is important. Getting out there and exploring is important. But I think we swung the pendulum way over to one side, haven't we? Yeah. I love another point that you make, again, fairly early in the book. You say you can't control whether or not you're a native, but you can control whether or not you're a local. I love the phrasing of that and the principle behind that. Walk that through with us for a little bit. What does that mean? The phrase I use is I I got here as fast as I could to Colorado. And I'm like, okay, if you're a native, cool. There's like four of you. That's awesome. You're amazing. You have the bumper sticker on your car. But it's the difference is not whether you were born here. It's actually whether you understand our cultural rhythms or not. There's some mistakes that people make. Even do you understand what the cultural idols are? If we're going to go biblical on this, what are the cultural idols of that place? And I believe each region has them. And for us, it's experiences. But if you were to, as the pastor, get up in the pulpit and say, stop going to the mountains for camping. Why in the world would you do that? Well, don't be jealous, pastor, that you can't be up in the mountains right now. Just go on Friday (laughs) and Saturday. And then you go, hey, how amazing is it that we get to be camping in the mountains and that we get to be so close to creation? The example of living into those cultural rhythms or not, right? It's the, oh, when the Broncos games are on, uh, and the game starts at 11, expect more people in your earlier service versus I've heard people like chastise of like, here we go, your new idol of the Broncos, which they're not doing well this year. It's not like it's going to get you much advantage on that. But I mean, I think that's, it's living into the rhythms and understanding it. And then you can actually have heart to heart conversations of when a good thing like camping becomes a God thing, i.e. an idol uh, in our lives. And so I think it's, that's what people are looking for is living into the rhythms that 90% of the people live here because it's beautiful and we're right next to the mountains and we love those things. And the people that sort of don't live into those, Carl, I watched have exited our city and gone to other places that were probably more kind of agnostic and kind of open places, not biblically, but open maybe to the rhythms or the experiences of a different place. 
And the more unique the place, the more I think yeah. we need to be tuned in to be learners. Every leader is a learner, but yeah. I think especially a kingdom leader needs to be. Yeah, yeah. And this idea of understanding and living in the cultural rhythms, I think, is even is especially applicable for those of us who are in a small church environment, because a big church kind of creates their own culture. It, it, they're like a massive planet with their own gravitational pull, and they create their own rhythm. They create their own culture. And there are parts of that that are good, but there's a whole bunch of that that really isn't because it is disconnected from its community, even yeah. physically where the building, you've got to go through a mile of parking lot to get to the building. Mm -hmm. Nobody's going to just wander by the front door on a Sunday morning as people are exiting, <laughs> right? There's a physical disconnect there, but in a small church, you've really got to understand and connect to the cultural rhythms of a community, if you're going to have any hope of having an impact either in your church or in your community. In fact, when I talk to small church pastors, uh, this is one of the things that I talk to them about, because from a big church perspective, and it's not wrong, it's just simply a different size perspective, they create their own culture. But in a small church, uh, what I tell them is this, you got to do three steps. One, you've got to understand the culture around you. Secondly, you've got to show them what you appreciate about the culture, which is your understand and live within the cultural rhythms. And only then will they give you, and here's the phrase I use, only then will they give you limited permission to participate with them in moving the culture forward. Mm -hmm. But it's got to be a dance with the culture and an understanding of it rather than simply in a disconnected way, offering an alternative. Obviously, in the kingdom of God, we offer an alternative culture, but it can't be so ignorantly disconnected from the current culture or it won't have an impact. So yeah. what you're talking about is especially applicable to the small church pastors who are listening into this, because that's got to be a big part of what we do. We aren't big enough to create our own separate culture, and we shouldn't want to. That's right. And a lot of the book, Carl, is actually just our family on mission. And our family mm -hmm. saying, you know what, if I'm going to talk about these things, if I'm going to preach about these things, if I'm going to now, I mean, I, most of who I coach are pastors, then I really better be living these things out. It wasn't even just a piece of conviction. It moved from, from conviction to joy and celebration to say, the water's great. Come on in. Like, I, I want yeah. you to figure this thing out, but you can't cheat off our paper. We did free coffee Friday. I talk a lot in the book, uh, but we also live across from an elementary school. So that means there's a lot of tired parents of young kids, bus drivers who need to stay caffeinated, maybe need to stay safe. They've started early in the morning, many of them at 4.45 or 5. There's sirens going off in the background. We're in the middle of the city uh, of that, yeah. right? So for good or for ill, here we are yeah. in the middle of this. That was our context for Free Coffee Friday there. And we had older neighbors that would then wander out and sort of accidentally mentor. Uh, and we had this intergenerational thing going on. But if you just cheat off that paper and say, we're going to do Free Coffee Friday here, we've already made a mistake. It's yeah. based on our neighborhood. What yeah. are the gaps? What are the cracks? And for me, it was loneliness. For me, it was passing people and kind of waving or doing the American head nod, but not actually knowing who they are. They may have deep pain in their lives. They may be, you know, an investment banker with a hundred million dollars to give away this next year. I have no idea who they are uh, in reality, but they park in front of my house every single day. And so I think the danger is take this, and replant it somewhere else. A palm yeah. tree in Colorado, I hate to tell you, it ain't going to do great. Yeah. But you know what? They took them from California and they sure have worked well in the Phoenix area in the middle of the desert. And so every context is different. Yeah, we really do have to be students of our context. Otherwise, we don't have a chance of really reaching it. You use the term faithful presence. 
uh, when you're referring to that. And you break it down in, in three different ways. You say there are three key aspects to being a faithful presence. Walk us through those, because I, I think they were very important the way you laid them out in the book. Yeah, I my mind has radically shifted in the last 15 years of mission on these, Carl. And when we got to the idea of a present, even just that phrase, I'll just say this, like my the American up and to the right side of me doesn't even like that phrase. Mm. And yet I use it out loud because I need it. Because I, I want to say what is right, what is fresh, what is successful, what is working. But even just that phrase is like resistance to our culture. And I think without resistance to our transplanting culture to even now, houses are expensive and so expensive in Colorado that people are like, you know what, I could cash out and and move to the Midwest. And you can, and there's nothing wrong with that. No shame, no guilt, no shade on those folks. But the reality is that we have valuable work to do here and we would pull these roots out of the ground and our family would have to start over somewhere else. Faithful yeah. presence. And so honestly, I, I wrestled to even put that in the book uh, many really? times because I thought, man, I, I sort of am held accountable to this. I had a guy actually call me after the book was published and said uh, jokingly, so, uh, well, you're staying there forever. Good luck with that. And it was like, yeah, that's kind of part of the point is to hold myself <laughs> accountable that I've written it, um, that it would be awkward enough that I'd have to explain the story. Why'd you leave? Hey, it'd be, it'd be a bit of a joke, right? This staying guy, yeah, yeah. why are you guys leaving? And so faithful to me, it's father, what do you have for us here? Hands open, open my eyes, you find what you're looking for. And I think that's part of faithfulness and just the idea of presence. Um, being fully present. And even today, I mean, I'm holding up my phone and looking at this. I could be around in proximity and not be present. And we do it all the time. Uh, yeah. And we oh, see yeah. a room of teenagers, um, especially doing it, and actually, frankly, more and more adults um, at a restaurant where you look around. They are proximate, but they are not present. And so maybe the opposite would be successful proximity. And in resistance to that would actually be faithful presence. Um, so yeah. even the phrase, I like just can't get over it. It still challenges me. Some days I wish there would just be sort of an easy switch on that. I want to turn the, the question back on you though, before I kind of talk okay. about those, was there one of the three that you felt like was, was more helpful in those three phases or more disruptive? They're, they're all important. Let me lay out specifically what they are. It's incarnation. That is, you know, being physically there. Uh, secondly, longevity, sticking around for a long time. And then thirdly, uh, trying to find a ground level connection. So I think all three of those are important. For me, the longevity has become huge recently. Uh, we are 30 years and counting in our current church. And as I travel, I've been with a couple of denominations recently, and I won't say which ones they are because I don't want to bag on them. But I've been with, a, with churches in a couple of denominations recently that their ministerial philosophy is to move their pastors around every couple of years. And even when I ask the pastors who have been a part of this denomination, their entire lives been moved around on average every three to five years. When I ask them, why is that the policy? They shrug their shoulders and shake their heads and go, we don't know why that's the policy because pastoral transition is the biggest regularly occurring threat to the long-term health of a congregation. Pastoral transitions are typically either caused by a problem or create a problem. <laughs> 
you can point to very few, and I'm blessed to be in a place where that does exist, where five years ago, I transitioned out of lead pastor and my youth pastor transitioned into being my lead pastor. And it didn't happen because of a problem and it didn't cause any problems. But that's like one out of a thousand. I've been able to pull off probably the hardest thing I will ever do in pastoral ministry I have now done. I have handed off a strong church to another person without it creating a problem. Congrats. It's a big deal. We need more of those stories. Yeah, but we do that on a regular basis. So this whole idea of avoiding the constant pastoral transition, which typically keeps churches at a state of uncertainty and immaturity. So that's the big one for me. What, what do we gain when we stay? What do we as pastors and what do the churches and what do the communities around those churches gain when we stay? And what do we lose when we're constantly on that rotating wheel? And longevity Longevity is huge. We tend to think about it like dutifully, I should stay because this is the healthy thing. But reciprocity, I think, is there. I mean, like mm. literally deep in the human psyche is to know and be known, to love and be loved. And people love the image of a pastor, the idea of a pastor, maybe the role of a pastor, even. But when we continue to move around or, you know, a denomination sort of setting that person up to not be loved, setting them up to be a character in a play or a caricature, not even a human, that's a problem. How can we give love if we cannot receive it? How can we receive love if we are not there long enough to be known warts and all? And so unfortunately, I think that model sets people up as the caricature, even just the informal model of, yeah, about every five years, you're going to sort of up your game to the next church, the bigger church, the whatever church. One of the reasons that we're called Stay Forth and our coaching organization, we host experiences is because those problems, they jump in your suitcase, Carl, and they travel really well with you. Yeah. It, it, that it, I started to see the mm-hmm. leaders that would leave every three years and then I'm here and I couldn't even keep up with where they are. And on Facebook, yep. like, oh, no, now we're here 12 moves later. I'm exaggerating, but three moves, four moves later, I look and I go, they're still wrestling with the same thing we talked about over coffee that they refused and thought, no, if I go to the next place, it'll be better. And I'll be better. If I go to the next place and it's like, no, if we can just deal right here with it, the level of humility and community, then man, we can actually receive that reciprocity from people. So that would be one of the things that I don't want us to forget about. And now a short break to talk about something else. If you like the content you're hearing, here are two things you can do for us. First, forward this podcast to a friend. Second, consider becoming a financial supporter through Patreon, Venmo, or PayPal. Just go to carlvaders.com support. For as little as $3 a month, you can help us put these resources into the hands of the ministries that need them the most. Our support link is in the show notes. This episode is brought to you by the Grace Enough podcast. I am its host, Amber Cullum. Each week, I sit down with a guest to discuss hard truths and the unwavering grace of God they've experienced while journeying in God's kingdom here on earth. You'll hear from guests like Jen Wilkin, Jamie Ivey, Andy Crouch, and Scott McKnight. Listen to these conversations and more by searching Grace Enough Podcasts on your favorite listening app or by visiting graceenoughpodcast.com.
it reminds me, I, I just searched for it and found it here from your book. Uh, this is one of those, one of those when I, oh no, he didn't when I read it moments. <laughs> <laughs> Page 11 of your book, you said the draw away from place is largely rooted in consumption and illusion. We consume places and relationships as long as they are good for us, giving us a fuzzy feeling, making us happy, helping us live our dreams. So this idea that we're just jumping from place to place, talk about those two terms. It's rooted in consumption and illusion. Yeah. When I go on vacation, I want it to not rain. I want it to be perfect <laughs> each day. I want every store to be open. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I want it to be good for me. Emphasis on me. I want the best dang four days that I can have in that place. And then I go home and leave a couple bucks behind. But the pilgrim there has to each day wake up and make that a beautiful place. I don't see the work that they went into that. Millions of dollars that went into neighborhood restoration that I am staying in that Airbnb. I just want a cool place that I just clicked on the Airbnb and paid 20 bucks more because it looked cooler over here. And again, that's in our bloodstream as consumerism to pick the best of. And um, luckily, and no doing of my own, Carl, we were in a place of weakness and we ended up in our neighborhood through a gift of a friend that said, you guys can rent our place for under market value. And we moved into this sort of, I call it the donut. It's not cool enough to be our sort of our urban core downtown. It's not nice enough to be way out in the suburbs. It's just kind of 1960s. It just kind of is. And now I absolutely love it and wouldn't really want to live any other place right now in our life phase than this neighborhood. And yet God chose it for us. And so it was the opposite of, of consumption. We can have whatever we want. Limitation breeds innovation. And our limits were high. And so we had to think differently about our place. And so in the kindness of God, I could not consume the place that we were to live. But if we had unlimited yeah. cash, moved into our place, I can tell you we wouldn't have moved into the neighborhood that we had. And in God's kindness, we had many limits on our life. And yeah. I think if we could, if we could view ourselves as a self-imposed limit, I think that ground level connectedness for us is actually a response to need and a response to, I don't just want to live in a home. I actually just don't want to live in a transient place. Like I want to live among real people yeah. so that when it hits the fan in my life, we're theirs. We support and we get supported. There's a lot there, but I think that to me is the opposite yeah. of consumers. Now, here's the cool thing. That does make a good place to visit. That does make a beautiful city. But if you just set out to create a beautiful city without the ingredients of love, sacrifice, care, and ultimately living the gospel in place, slowly, uh, St. Teresa of Avila, said, above all, trust the slow work of God. Yeah, I love that. I hate that, but I've learned. Yeah, I, yeah. Oh, I know. No, yeah. I, I love it as a concept. <laughs> and, <laughs> That's right. and, we've got, and we've got to learn to love it as a reality. Absolutely. You use the term that we need to have self-imposed limits, which I really love. So kind of with that idea, for those who are listening right now and who are thinking, you know what? I get it. I understand the value of staying long-term. And maybe I've tried to stay long-term, but I, for whatever reason, I haven't been able to. And I'm not talking about those who are required denominationally to leave. That's a separate issue uh, sure. to deal with. But for those who have found themselves being more transient than they want to, do you have any uh, thoughts for those who are looking at it and going, okay, how do I stay long-term? What do I need to do in order to set myself up for success in staying and being incarnational where I am and being a faithful presence where I am. Do you have any pieces of advice for them to start working on to be able to make a success of that? Yeah. Leadership coach Allen has to come out right now. Um, values, bottom line, we have to name our values. 
And if we have these sort of underlying warring values, then they will come out in the midst of life. They'll be squeezed out, right? When life squeezes you like toothpaste, you see what comes out. And if we name our values to say, like, for example, education, I think we have an idolatry of perfection for our kids. They got to be the best soccer player in the best soccer league and the, you know, this thing or that thing. And it's like, my kids are not in the best schools in my city, Carl, not even close. However, if we're talking about education, I will sacrifice education for people education. Diversity and ethnicity is incredibly important to us. Also socioeconomically, we're kind of on the edge of two different parts of town. That to me is stuff money can't buy. Money can actually buy you the private school up there and nothing wrong with private schools or money could buy you a spot in that district over here. But willingly we say that value wins over this value. Is good education bad? Of course not, right? Another example would be this, whether it's across town or across somewhere else, what is the good life for us? And defining the good life, naming the good life for us is like, we're actually living it now. My kids walk to school. I know my neighbors We're living intergenerationally. I've done funerals, memorial services, and I got one coming whenever $2 bill from the book passes away. That's a special thing that has taken yeah. years to cultivate. And so there's actually a really beautiful spot in our city and next to Wilderness Preserve. And there was about a year or two, Carl, we were dreaming about even looking at homes in that area. It did something to my heart. And the moment that we took it off the table and said, nope, what did we do? We painted our house. We started investing where we're at. My yard's looking a little bit, a little bit better because my heart was divided just 20, 25%. And that seed in the back of when we have a little bit more money, then we'll move to this part of town and just to eliminate it. And so I'd say, name your values. Talk about that question with your spouse. What is the good life for us? And actually lay out a plan for that. And then I, I would say, just cut off those areas that are distracting you from actually being fully present or even faithfully present there. Those have been three big ones for us. Yeah. Oh, that's huge. I love that. Before we go into the lightning round, I do want to talk for a moment about something that I know is important to you and is becoming more and more important in the ministry that we're doing as well. At Stay Forth, you're, you talk a lot about the importance of sabbaticals and you do sabbatical coaching. Why do sabbaticals matter and why is it if and when we do one that we do so in a purposeful way? And what, would, what does that look like? Uh, in short, it is one of the most disorienting and life-changing decisions that a leader can make is to do proactively and responsibly walk into a sabbatical. We don't even use the word take sabbatical, but receive sabbatical. It's one of God's greatest gifts. Um, I personally had kind of a C minus sabbatical and then a C plus sabbatical. Reality is I did the best I could on my own. I just didn't have a sabbatical coach. I didn't know there was the thing. And so just to say like, there is a thing called a sabbatical coach. There are people like a mountain guide that can help lead you up Kilimanjaro or like a world-class peak. You still climb the thing, but there are people going with you, showing you the route, going alongside of you. It is incredibly disorienting in the best of ways. And without a coach, it can be incredibly disorienting in the worst of ways to simply pull out of doing too much to suddenly not having any direction for where we're going. It could be a nightmare for you and your church. And it's not leaving, by the way, to go write a book. I've written books. You've written books. That's work. It's just a different kind of work. It's not an academic sabbatical. We're talking about a biblical sabbatical based on this gift that is rest. And it doesn't just mean sitting around in your sweatpants the whole time, but it is truly about rediscovering the rest of God in the rhythms down the line. I'm incredibly passionate about it and I'm watching it change lives as we go. So I think just uh, when responsibly done, 
plan proactively, walk through with wisdom, we actually find disorientation that leads to a beautiful reorientation for that leader, for their family. And ultimately it's a gift to the church and elders staff thank us later. And especially if you're going to stay long-term, you've got to have the ability to run the marathon. You've got to take those breaks. If we're going from one sprint to the next, that's a totally different thing. But if you're going to stay for the marathon. It's huge. I mean, to connect sabbatical to longevity, it's a chance to fall in love with your city again. It's just like my wife and I are going for an anniversary getaway. And each time we get away, we're like, yeah, we love each other. Like we actually love each other as husband and wife and friends, not just as, you know, cohabitating and leading this family together and, and bus drivers. We actually love each other. And that's what I'm reminded as I have time. I'm like, man, vacation in my own city. Like, I'm not like doing anything huge. I'm just walking down the block to the coffee shop. Like, I love this place. So I, I think it's a great point is that if we want to truly have longevity, not just hanging on, but truly replenished, I don't know another way. There's one silver bullet for this in scripture I see, and it's called Sabbath. And it's sustained the Jewish people over thousands of years. We're not paying attention to it. And our mental health is going down the drain because of it. Yeah, fully agree. It is, it is an important part of what you do. It is going to become a huge important part of the next segment of our ministry. So we will revisit with this with you at another time and partner with you in this and trying to help people get whatever help they can to do sabbatical, first of all, and secondly, to do it purposefully, which I think is extremely important. But let's get to the lightning round. I'm terrified, let you man. Go this Ooh, first one, as you, as you are to Shaking be. in my boots, Carl. <laughs> <laughs> all right. First of all, what are the biggest changes you've seen in your field of ministry in the last few years, and how have you adapted to it? The rise of coaching due to COVID, we adapted, honestly, because we had to. It wasn't this proactive uh, adaptation. It just, life got complex, leadership got complex, ministry got complex, and we had to grow our team because of this. You really didn't see much coaching outside of the executive field. And in the ministry field, leadership coaching was not really seen as a thing. Uh, And so we tried to scale that by um, adding more faithful and effective coaches. And at times, pushing people to other networks. Yeah, it's been huge lately. And the need for it, I think, is more than it ever was. I think back in the day when I was a kid, at least, like geography was automatic, relationships were fairly automatic as well. And now neither neither geography, geographical presence nor relationships are automatic. So we have to be more intentional about it, which means books like Staying is the New Going and intentionally having a coach to do what, quite frankly, generations ago was kind of built into the yes. way of fabric of the way people live their lives. In fact, that's one of the things that I often hear from people my generation or older is, ah, everybody got to have a coach now. We didn't have have coach back in the day. Right, you sure. had a coach back in the day. <laughs> it just- he, he lived next door to you or he was your yes. uncle or he was your dad's friend that you called in to help. We've, we've lost community. Therefore, we've lost mentorship and sages. And so yep. weirdly, we have to go and find other sages in other ways. That's a great point, Carl. Yeah. Yeah. It's what we've always done, but now we got to be more intentional about it. Love it. Secondly, what free resource like an app or a website has helped you lately that you would recommend for small church ministry? I'm a huge fan of Calendly, even the free version. Mm -hmm. Basically, you can send somebody a link for scheduling. I think for the small church pastor to hold a boundary, to say, here's when you can schedule a meeting with me. Here's when I'm not available, how I'm available, and here's how I'm not available in terms of the methods is a huge boundary setter. Big fan of it. Yeah. One of the things I, that's fascinating to me about it is when somebody sends me a Calendly link, I don't feel that they have been limiting to me. I feel like they've given me 
uh, yes. choices and options and I appreciate it. And yes. I, and I used to so, have to exchange six emails with you and be like, yeah. hey, what about this? What about that? Through, you know, a, a friend here or an assistant. Let me check with my team. And I, at the beginning thought, oh, I'm a prima donna. Carl's going to hate me because he's like, <laughs> oh, what kind of guy has a schedule? And people are like, thank you for giving me options. My schedule's weird too. Yep. You know, so it's like, oh, it's actually been the opposite. But for yeah, a boundary, exactly. the reality is like holding a kid's boundary because no one's going to pick my kid up from school. They're actually going to be like stuck waiting for dad to not show up. And that ensures that somebody isn't overscheduling yeah. my calendar. Well, that's how we put together our appointment today. We sent you a Calendly link. We use it as, as well. I love it. All right. Number three, what's the best piece of ministry advice you've ever received? Early in ministry, somebody said, get three blocks of your day, morning, afternoon, evening, and don't work all three. And when you do, just be aware of that. I'm telling you, I've been blocking my schedule like that ever since. I don't actually remember who it was that told me, but thank you, Sage, if you're listening, for telling mm -hmm. me that. It changed the way I scheduled. It changed the way I did teaching prep. It changed the way I said no to people. And ultimately, I've been able to give way more because I'm imagining those two blocks and invest way more in my family because that one little sentence. Yeah, this is something that I had not heard until somebody else mentioned it recently, and I'm glad it's coming up again. So just to walk through it for those who haven't heard it. So we're talking about organizing your day in three pieces, for instance, eight to noon, noon to four, four to eight or whatever. And then at least one of those has to be complete downtime. And it can be any one of the three. And obviously somebody else might have a different three. But so that we're not just simply constantly on the clock, yes. you're being proactive yes. about your downtime. Yep. All right. Give me, give me two minutes here. I know it's lightning round, but okay. for me, yep. that, that has changed in the season. I used to love to sleep in and before having kids, that was actually a great time. I was like, oh, that's awesome. A slow morning where you can kind of come in at 11 or 12. And I was the whole day I was more relaxed because of that. Now I'm a morning person. I'm coaching people in all three time zones. And so mornings are awesome for me, but I finish work at 2.30. You're like, what in the world? Like I just moved my day a couple mm -hmm. hours earlier. It's awesome. But the most valuable part of my day is literally three o'clock to seven o'clock PM. That is when my kids need me the most. They're most available. That's when I can serve my family the most. I get dinner started, all those things. I help with homework and just in shifting same philosophy, Carl, different block. I've been able to be more effective in what I do. And I'm able to practically love my family way better than I could before but it's the same thing at work. We're just moving some Legos around in my schedule. Yeah. Very practical. I love that. All right. Last lightning round question. What's the funniest or weirdest thing you've ever seen in church? Funniest or weirdest thing I've ever seen in church. Oh man. I, I've seen some weird and awkward stuff. I'm like, <laughs> some of them are probably not appropriate. All right. So one thing happened to me and we'll just say this and, and it was awkward on my behalf. I got in the baptismal tub, which was a hot tub and the governor on the heat was broken. And I swear to you, it must've been at like 120. I can handle like 108. And it, I looked down, it was like burning my leg, like my red mark on my leg. Lights come to me. I tried to introduce what this communion thing was, or what this baptism thing was. Could not even talk. I had to get out of it. And I realized we're not going to scald these people. There's a line of people waiting. And I'm like, and back to you. We'll hit this after the sermon. Commence people coming in with the ice and, and all that. So that. That was one of those experiences. I think I tried to play it off. I think it did decently, actually. But we still laugh about it. And we got the hot tub fixed on that. The other thing that I just think every time, if you baptize people in waders, like just as a fisherman, 
First of all, I just think that's one of the funniest things. That, I might as well put a fly vest on. Secondly, isn't that like cheating? Talk about incarnational ministry. Hey, I'm that's not even going to get wet. You're going to get wet, but I got waiters on over here. So sorry if anybody here baptizes in waiters. I just have some baggage. It's me. It's not you. Yeah. I mean, to, to me, the waiters is even weirder than like we use the horse water tank. Oh, the horse we have a small, awesome. the, the horse trough because it's portable size and facility and portability and all that. And so you're not in the horse trough with them, but it doesn't feel like you're the waiters feel really weirdly intentional. Like I'm not yes. even going to get this drop on me. I got to be in there with yes. you, but I'm not really going to be in there. with you. <laughs> I feel like if we're truly going to baptize somebody, then I mean, hot water, scalding water, cold water, I'm going to be wet with you. And if I don't walk up to, to the pulpit with, I don't have hair, but with, with a little bit of water in my beard, like the job has not fully been done. So I don't know how incarnational that is, but. If you don't feel like a lobster when it's done, you haven't done it right. Amen. Amen. <laughs> hey, Alan, how can people find you online if they'd like to follow up on anything we've talked about? Yeah, uh, stay forth. So don't go forth, stay forth, S-T-A-Y-F-O-R-T-H, Instagram, and uh, stayforth.com. And honestly, we have a team of uh, almost 20 coaches, and we are here to serve. The cool thing, too, is we actually have a scholarship fund. We have some generous donors. Oh, very cool. So the first time people say, well, we're a small church, we can't afford this or that. Uh, we don't start with that. We start with the need. Uh, we're here to help. We're here to serve. So we'd absolutely love to, to serve leaders. Also right side up leadership podcast. We're talking all about yes. leadership health over there. It's sort of leadership health for people who aren't monastic and aren't sort of like the best to just waking up and every day refreshing your soul. And I just know that it's a struggle for me. I live in the real world. And so we're, we're having real interviews over there. I'd love to do a collaboration as well uh, between this. We love, love, love small church leaders and just want to remind you guys, we love you. Keep going. You're doing a really, really hard thing. And what you do really, really matters. So please hear that posture from us to stay forth. We love you. Thank you, Alan. Very much appreciate your heart on that. And we we will plan to be working with you, especially on the rest and sabbatical part of it uh, as we move forward and start collecting as many ideas and resources and people and partners as we possibly can to pull all this together to help as many small church pastors as we can. I love your heart, love what you do and appreciate your time. Thanks for what you do, Carl. Thanks for being a voice for this. Thank you, Alan. Appreciate it very much. So is staying the new going? Is God more likely calling us to plant ourselves in ministry for the long term rather than jumping from place to place? Yeah, there's no question about it. So much of what we talked about, what Alan is living and writing about, resonates with what I've experienced both in my own pastorate and in so many conversations I've been having with fellow pastors. So some important takeaways for me include the especially transient nature of American pastors. It's causing more problems than we realize, and we need to address this. Secondly, we can choose to be a local, even if we aren't a native. In other words, you can't choose where you're born, but you can choose where you stay, and that's so important. I also picked up that the simplicity of being a faithful presence in a community is an often overlooked value, and most of us are overdue for a sabbatical. These sabbaticals matter, but when we finally do one, we need to have a plan. So, can this work in a small church? Can we stay long-term for more effective ministry if our denominational policies don't require us to move, that is? And the answer, of course, is a huge yes. As we addressed in the interview, long-term pastoral ministry may be even more important for small church ministry effectiveness than it is for our big church friends. 
People need to know you're genuinely engaged in their lives and in the life of the church and in the life of the community if you're going to have the kind of impact God is calling you to have in a smaller congregation, especially for small churches. It's essential to understand and live within what Alan called the cultural rhythms of our church and its community. If you'd like to support this ministry with a one-time gift or monthly donation and help put these resources into the hands of ministries that need them the most, check out our support link in the show notes. Would you like a transcript of this episode? It will be available within a few days of the podcast air date at christianitytoday.com slash carlvaders. You can find the link in the show notes. This episode was produced by Veronica Beaver, edited by Phil Vaders, Original theme music was written and performed by Jack Wilkins of jackwilkinsmusic.com. And me, I'm Carl Vaders, and I'm a small church pastor. This episode was brought to you in part by Wheaton College's M.A. in Humanitarian and Disaster Leadership, which prepares Christian professionals to serve others faithfully and excellently. Called to help people facing disasters, human trafficking, poverty, or displacement as refugees? Visit wheaton.edu hdl.